We're going to start with a quiz, that's all right. That's okay. Uh, You'll notice that on the screen behind you, there is a set of images. I'll explain what they are. And I just wanted to spot the fact that one of these things is not like the others. One of these things is not like another. So just to explain what the pictures are, and picture A, if you can't quite see that because the contrast isn't too great, uh, you have a picture of a Portuguese man of war. In picture B, there's a picture of a group of people shopping. In picture C, it's a colony of ants. And in picture D, there's a colony of bees. And one of these things is not like the others. And you can send your answers on a postcard to... No, no, you don't send it. Just seriously think about it. Dwell on it. I'm not going to ask you to shout out your answer. I just wanted to think about it. And I, I, I wanted to consider it as I continue to share some things. Because I want to start a new series this morning. A series called One Another. And we're going to be exploring in this series a handful of verses, or just a small amount of the handful of verses. In the New Testament, I have this phrase, one another, that constantly turns up throughout them. And we're going to mention a couple of them in a few minutes. And I want to do that because I want to spend some time looking at church and what church is. Not church in a, in a theoretical, theological sense, although there will be a little bit of that, but church in a practical way. What makes church church? And as I said a number of weeks ago when we are in our in our creed series when I was looking at this idea of this Catholic communion of church, I mentioned that church is not a description of a building. We're in some bricks and mortar, but this bricks and mortar is not the church. The church is not a meeting. It's not a service. That's not what church is. And it's not a group of people who just happen to be in the same place. A church is supposed to be a community. A community that is centered around Jesus Christ. And I'm sure, I'm certain, we all know that. We've heard it before, we know it. And I'm certain that we all understand that what defines a community as a community is a measure of our interaction, a measure of our interdependence, a measure of our relationships. And so for community to exist, for community to exist, there has to be this, I suppose, this one anothering quality to it. This one anothering quality among its individual parts. And so it's on that basis that one of the above images is not like the others. Three of these things are a community. They one another. One of these things is not one another. Do you got any ideas? You got any ideas? So I'm not going to ask your answer. I'm not going to tell you the answer. Well, think about it. I want you to dwell about it. I want you to understand it. I want you to think. I'm not going to give you the answer. Or you can have a chat about it afterwards. Or you can think and you can speak to me afterwards. A number of years ago, I read a book by a, an American pastor called Francis Chan. I'm sure a number of us have heard of Francis Chan. And in a book on discipleship called Multiply, he wrote this. He wrote that while every Christian, while every individual needs to obey Jesus' call to follow, we must realize that we cannot follow Jesus as individuals. Let me say that again. While every individual needs to obey Jesus' call to follow, we must realize that we cannot follow Jesus as individuals. Now, Chan, Francis Chan hasn't said anything controversial there, but I'm sure it might rub a couple of us up. And it might get our brain cells ruined. But we cannot follow Jesus as individuals. And he's not the first person to say this. He's not the only person to say this. Pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson, if you've ever heard of Eugene Peterson, he wrote that translation of the Bible called The Message. He also makes the same point in his book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Excellent book. And prior to his death a number of years ago, 
Peterson wasn't some kind of academic who was locked behind a school door all the time, shut away from people and shut away the world. He was a pastor for many, many years. He rubbed shoulders at real people with real problems in the real world. And he did life with them as they shared and they encouraged one another to seek to follow Jesus Christ. And when he first became a pastor of a local church, he had a bit of a shock. He was quite shocked because he realized the different kinds of people that he was called to be church with. And he wasn't happy about it. He realized that he had to one another with people he didn't necessarily prefer. And he's quite an honest writer. If you ever read any Peterson's books, he's really honest. He's really vulnerable. And so he writes, I often found myself preferring the company of people outside my congregation. Men and women who didn't follow Jesus. Or worse, preferring the company of my sovereign self. But I soon found that my preferences were honored by neither Scripture nor Jesus. I didn't come to this conviction easily, he writes, but there's no getting around it. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness, wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion and an embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. Community, not the highly advertised individualism of our culture, is the setting in which Christ is at play. Now again, Peterson, like Francis Chen, he's simply pointing out that if you're seeking to follow Jesus, to mature in faith, then it's not a solo sport. It's not a one man and his dog kind of thing. You cannot be yourself by yourself. Because this, 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 there is this delusion, I suppose, and it, it infects all of us. It's, it's a very modern Western delusion that attempts most of us, myself included, that often in a Christian life, we think that all is required is me and the Holy Spirit, and that's fine. But actually, as Peterson points out, Jesus plays in community. It's through our relationships with one another where Jesus is active and made visible. Again, Peterson and Francis Chan are not the only people who've said this. There's a pastor and author called Richard Beck, and he wrote an amazing book a number of years ago about the devil and spiritual warfare called Reviving Old Scratch, an excellent book. I'd highly recommend it. If either of those two topics make you think, hmm, that's a bit weird, I understand. It does me too, but it's a great book. And Beck wrote that book after spending a number of years being a pastor in a church, but also being a pastor in a prison. And he made this observation. He says, repeatedly, the Bible tells us that the church is that the church is where people come together to practice care and peace. The church is a laboratory of love and re reconciliation, a workshop of sharing and forgiving, a testing ground of mercy and grace. And what is vitally important about all of this is how care and peace are practices being worked out face to face with real people. We are real people here this morning, aren't we? He carries on saying this, the kingdom of God is the hard, intimate, and sweaty work of simply getting along with people. Where you can't get away with loving humanity abstractly or theoretically like you can on social media, you have to practice care and peace with the person standing right in front of you, the person boring you and annoying you as you're sipping bad coffee together. Jesus didn't leave behind a political party, he writes. 
Jesus gave us a people, a group of people to get along with. And while that might seem simple enough, if you've ever tried curing for and living at peace with a group of people, you know it's one of the hardest things in the world. It's much easier, he writes, to love people in the abstract than it is to love actual human beings. But that's what the church gives you, actual human beings. And that's why, he concludes, the church being together, loving one another, simply getting on with one another, is a form of spiritual warfare that is unfortunately far too much neglected. And it's the same point again. We cannot follow Jesus as individuals. And long before any of those three guys, whether before Chan and Peterson and Beck, before they made that observation, the New Testament writers at the same point and that's why they keep using this term, one another. It crops up all the time in the New Testament. And Paul is one of those people who says that he's not the first. We'll look at the first a little bit later on. But Paul is one of them. And so we're going to turn, if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 12. And we're going to read a great passage about being one another. Romans chapter 12. I want you to think about this passage as we read it. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And after, wonder, after a wonderful kind of few sentences at the end of chapter 11 about how great God is and how wonderful God is, Paul writes this in Romans 12, verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind you will find acceptable. This is the true way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. Just as bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take that responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. And when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy, and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. 
Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. I love that one. Never pay back evil with immoral evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable and do all you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. It's a great passage, isn't it? I just look, it's a wonderful passage. Uh, I'm not saying you should have favorite passages in the scripture, but that's certainly one of mine. It's such a wonderful, wonderful passage. And I'm sure it's a passage that many of us are familiar with. Uh, we've read it a number of times, and think, I don't think it was that long ago when we read it again here on a Sunday morning. And I'm sure we're very familiar with the first few verses where Paul talks about being a living sacrifice and allowing God to transform us into a new person. But what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? And what is this new person? And there are a number of ways to answer that. There are many ways we could talk about it. You could do a whole series, and we're not, on, on what does it mean to be a living sacrifice. But if we follow what Paul says next, about not thinking too highly of yourself as an individual, about not thinking that you are the center of it all, and recognizing that we are all just parts, and each of us an important part, but we're all just parts of this one body of people who follow Jesus, then there's already an answer that's already quite obvious. That our worship of God, as Paul points out in Romans 12, verses 3 to 5, entails that we don't delude ourselves into believing that we can do it as lone rangers, and that we can go it alone, but our worship of God, our life as a living sacrifice, looks like an immersion and an embrace of community. Doesn't it? Loving God, then, looks like loving others. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It should do. See, you read this passage, don't you? And there's nothing unsocial in it. There's no solo activities. I know it mentions prayer, but when Paul is writing this, he's writing to a local congregation. He's not just on about praying by yourself, which is good, but he's certainly encouraging that we also need to pray together. And on that point, our prayer meetings still take place every Friday night, uh, half seven on Zoom, but we do meet here every two weeks, me and Steph. Just getting that in as a little advertisement there. But it's nothing in social. Everything within this passage is about interaction. It's all interaction. There is this one of another life. And what Paul describes in this passage is, is more akin to three of those images, more akin to three of these images than one of these images. But Paul uses this, this wonderful other image, doesn't he? He does this wonderful image that no preacher has ever been able to beat since. And Paul uses this wonderful image of community of a body. He writes, doesn't he, in verses 4 to 5, that just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We, you and me, are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. That's a big, big phrase. But we get that image. It's a perfect image. We get it because we all have bodies. Every single one of us. 
And we all understand those bodies are made up of many parts and that those many parts come together to make our bodies work. They work with one another and they need one another. And we also know that the only way that we can express ourselves in our world is through our bodies. If you didn't have a body, I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't, would I? We wouldn't. See, when I do my dad dancing at home to embarrass my kids, uh, which I do a lot, uh, when I hug Steph, when I drive the car, when I wash the pots, it only happens because all the parts of my body interact together and it expresses who I am. And whenever I want to engage in the world or express something of myself into this world, then it requires my skin and my bones and my muscles and my sinews and my arteries and my veins. It requires my cells and my brain synapses. It requires my corrupted scouse accent and my breath and my body odor. I'm sorry about it, but it does. And God uses the same tactic. When God wants to express himself in the world, he uses bodies. See, Paul, throughout this letter in Romans, it's a great letter and it's a complex letter. I'm not going to do what Bruce Miller did a number of years ago and do a a three-year study on it, Uh, but it's a complex letter. But throughout this letter, Paul talks about God's passion for humanity and God's desire to engage with us and dwell with us and what God God has done to express and achieve that aim. And prior to us getting to chapter 12, Paul has spent chapters, chapters and chapters and words upon words talking about how God's promise to restore the world has been carried, has been carried via this story of a particular body of people called Israel and has now been made manifest in the life and death and resurrection of a particular body of Jesus and now, how God is now proclaiming that message within the world through an ever-growing, multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural body of people called us, the church. And by using this body talk, Paul's just saying the same thing as Francis Chan and Eugene Peterson and Richard Beck and many others for many years have been saying for centuries that Jesus has chosen community, one anothering as a means of his expression to the world, in the world. It's our life together that is meant to embody what Jesus is like. You've gone silent and quiet on me. We can only express Jesus when we one another with each other. You cannot do it by yourself. And that's why we need to improve our fluency with one anothering. Because apparently, if truth be told, we're not very good at it. And I'm not talking about us at MCC or even the church locally or even nationally or globally. I'm just talking about Western society as a whole. We're not very good at this thing called community. According to, according to a, a Harvard professor called Robert Putnam, he spent decades document, documenting the decline of group activity in North America, this decline of the ways in which North Americans would come together to do something together, like joining a choir or a sports team or church or even meeting for dinner. And he makes this statement that our generation, our generation, spends less time together than any other human generation that came before us. We have been dropping out a wider community 
shutting ourselves away, turning inward since the 1930s at least. And it's the same trend. It's not just a North American thing. It's the same trend in Britain. And if your lifespan spans a few generations, then you're probably nodding, thinking, yeah. Yeah, our generation today does do less than any other generation that came before us. And the strange thing is, as Putnam's research, as he looked at this, it's not like we've turned inward from the wider community and turned inward to our families. Actually, there's a decline in one another in our families as well. So in our society, our families eat together less. We watch TV together less. We walk together less. We talk together less. You might be sat there thinking, well, that's not me, and that's great, that's not you, but I'm on about society as a whole. And there's all sorts of reasons for it, and there's all sorts of consequences for it that it can have. But I read about it in a book called Lost Connections by a guy called Johan Hari. Uh, and he mentions this, when he considered this lack in this community and what's led to it, he writes this, that he kept noticing a self-help cliche that people say to each other all the time and share on Facebook all the time. And I mean to emphasize that because it is all the time. And he says this, we say to each other, nobody can help you except you. You ever heard that? Ever been told that? And he says this, it made me realize we haven't just started doing things alone more in every decade since the 1930s. We have started to believe that doing things alone is the natural state of human beings and the only way to advance. We have begun to think, I will look after myself and everybody else should look after themselves as individuals. But he says this, but this is a denial of human history And it's a denial of human nature. Now, I don't know if Johan Hari is religious or not. I don't know at all. But I'm sure he'd have no problem with agreeing with the sentiment of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. That it's not good for man to be alone. It's not. We're not made for that. And Genesis 2 speaks of that basic human need. And so does Romans 12. And so does Jesus' command to love one another, which we'll come to in a minute. But as humans, we're created to be in community with one another and with God. And I'm sure on some level, we all long for that, don't we? On some level, we, sh- we long to share something meaningful with others. We long to sh- long for community. But having said that, we know community is difficult. And it can be a pain in the neck. And it can be hard work. And it can, unfortunately, sometimes it can malfunction. And community can be toxic. There are times when we have been hurt by people. And not in a right way. Not that I can't say there is a right way. But there's times when we've been hurt with people. And if we're on our own, that wouldn't happen. There's times when people have said things and done things to us. Communities can be toxic. There are some communities, if they're like, for an example, an abusive community, I wouldn't want to wish to be a part of, and I wouldn't recommend that anybody else is a part of. And so it's important, isn't it, that while we understand that we are called to this one another life, it's also important as Christians that we have, it's vital that we grasp the nature of this one, in life, one another life as well. 
Because church is not just about one anothering in any old way, as if anything goes as, as long as we do it together. It's not, is it? It's got to be marked by love. As Jesus himself said, and he was the first to say it, the first one to use the one another term, when he gave us this command to love one another and called us to this one another life, he says, love one another. Just as I have loved you, love one another. That's the hallmark, isn't it? Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It's not any old one anothering that goes in church. It's a love of one anothering that has to happen in church. And when we think about all these one another verses that occur in the New Testament, then really all they are is a translation of this love of one another command into some really practical, concrete, daily down-to-earth expressions. And so I'm going to read a few out to you. And here's just a mere sample. And we're not going to cover all of these. They're on the screen behind me if you want to follow these. But I want you to consider these as I read them to you. And I'm not going to read the verses at each end, but they are there. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil to evil. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble against one another. That's a tough one, isn't it? Don't grumble against one another. Live in harmony with one another. Don't slander one another or complain about one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another before beginning communion or in Paul's context there before eating together. Don't bite, devour or consume one another. Don't boastfully challenge, provoke or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tender-hearted and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Confess sins to one another and pray for one another. Give preference to one another. Serve one another. Build one another up. Don't condemn. Don't condemn one another. That's just a handful of these one another verses. And we're only going to be considering a number of those. But now, I'm sure Jesus and his apostles give us more instructions to the church than those. And we need to read these in context to word of written, which we will do as we look at them, a few of them in the coming weeks. But even so, imagine belonging to a community like that. Imagine that. That'd be great, wouldn't it? It's just me who thinks that would be great. But it's also worth considering what, non and what one another's do not occur in the New Testament. Because there's a lot of one another's that we maybe think do occur in the New Testament, but they don't occur in the New Testament, and we don't have instructions. So, for example, even though we're urged to teach one another and we're encouraged to edify one another, we're not encouraged to sanctify one another. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And even though we're taught to teach one another, we're not told to assault one another. We're not told to shout over one another. We're not told to interrupt one another or insult one another or dominate one another or demonize one another. And neither are we told to defeat one another as if all it is is about winning someone in an argument. Do we understand that? 
We encourage to one, we encourage to, we are encouraged to honor one another and be humble in our own evaluation of ourselves. But we're never encouraged to humble one another. You'll notice that. I am never encouraged to humble you. We're told to watch over one another and warn each other. But we're never given permission to scrutinize or spy on one another. We're never given permission to pressure one another. We're never instructed to embarrass one another, corner one another, grind one another down, or run one another's lives. We're not given that instruction. We're prompted in Galatians 6, aren't we, to carry one another's burdens. But I never, ever read a command where we're told to lay burdens upon one another. Paul, doesn't he, as we've just read in Romans 12, pleads with us to offer our own self as a living sacrifice to God. But he never, ever tells us we should sacrifice one another. And the writing of the New Testament never appeals to us to shame one another or marginalize one another or abuse one another. And yes, James, and it's a wonderful passage, James invites me, I, you, I, to confess I sins to someone or some people who we can confide in them, who can pray with us and help us in our weaknesses and failures. But we are never, ever, most definitely ever encouraged to confess one another's sins. Are we? I hope you grasp that. Because it matters, doesn't it? If Jesus is seen in this one another life, and he can only be seen in this one another life, then how we one another matters. It's everything. And so we're going to spend some time in a few, for a few weeks looking at some of these one another's. Because the kind of God we believe in, the kind of Savior we believe in, the kind of gospel we believe in, is displayed in how we relate to one another. What is the church? It's a community whose one another life expresses the life of Jesus Christ. And if it expresses another life, then it's not church. Let's pray. Lord God, if the research of that Robert Putnam is true, uh, and we've got a lot of learning to do, and we've got a lot of changing to do. Uh, but in the midst of that, we pray you help us, because it might be easy just to hear this and just to jump on one another uh, with more demands of you must do this and you must do that, do that Lord God. But this, help us not to convict in that way, Lord God. Help us, help us, Lord God, to be open ourselves, me and I, to what you are saying to us by your Holy Spirit. As Paul encourages us, Lord God, we want to be a living sacrifice. And for each one of us in our worlds, in our jobs, in our family situations, in our, in our health situations, this one anothering will kind of take on a different nature for every single one of us. And so I pray as we explore in the weeks ahead, even with when we wrestle and we think with what we've heard this morning, help us, each one of us, to be led by your spirit to know what one anothering looks like where we are and in what we are doing. And I pray you help us as your church, not as MCC, but as your church in Bury, as your church in Great Britain, as your church globally, Lord God, uh, to express your life through this one another life.
that we have because of you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.